Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David, and with me the NCP crew, Richard. I should warn you, I'm a little sick, but I will still be more impressive than everybody on this podcast. It makes your voice sound even deeper and manlier. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The sexiest <laughs> NCP podcast you've ever heard. Oh yeah. And look... Unclean! Unclean! Quarantine! Black Plague alert! <laughs> we should be all wearing right. masks. You do look quite sick. Black Plague. Cool. That's alright. Look, you've already sealed me in this <laughs> special room. You've put me in a hazmat suit. What more do you want? Black Plague! Wrap, wrap, wrapped in clean wrap is not a hazmat suit. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and Crystal! I'm glad Luke wasn't here last week. We'd be in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, both of us were quite quite bad last week as well. It was pretty good. You're all sick. <laughs> so it's sick. your so it's Back. your fault. It's your fault that I'm unwell then. No, oh, it's Luke's fault. You weren't here. Bo was worried that we were going to infect him through the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that internet, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Did you realise that there are other viruses you can get from the internet before that happens? Exactly right. Look, this virus that I've got right now is just preparing my immune system for the zombie holocaust. When the zombies come, I'll be immune. How do you know you're not, you're not already a zombie, but just in denial? I kind of feel or like a your, zombie at the moment. Your, so. current, your current disease mutates and causes the zombie virus. As long as I'm oh, immune, it doesn't matter. Patient zero. <laughs> your patient zero. As long as, I'm, should... long as I'm immune, it's all good. <laughs> For this episode, we not only have a couple of reviews and our top five fictional detectives, but thanks to the awesome Supernova Expo, we also have an interview with Mr. Keir Dulia. Awesome. awesome. Everyone is awesome. <laughs> Everything is awesome. I've changed it for oh, your purposes. You make, you make it your own. Yeah, it, it is. It is cool. I mean, I mean much, much thanks to uh, Supernova Expo um, for giving us the access that we had. Um, it was, it was absolutely awesome. And it's obvious how much 2001 means to us here at NCP. I mean, it's our theme song. It's you know we've appropriated the logo. We're all huge fans of the show. It's brilliant, brilliant stuff. And f- the chance to speak to Mr. Delia was just unbelievably awesome. And he was. Awesome. Uh, and, it's, it's, uh, it's incredible to see nerd joy <laughs> expressed so fluently. He was a cool dude, and uh, he was... I've done, it was a moment for I've you. done quite a few celebrity interviews, and you know, and all of them are good. Uh, you know, all of them are enjoyable, and that... Uh, he um, was very awesome, Dave. He was very awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also important to note that he now looks like he does at the end of 2001, but a far better looking version. I mean, that... I mean, so that's, so, that's, so that's, you're saying he's transformed into a giant space baby? No. Not quite the end of 2001. Not the ultimate end. When he goes into the room and he sees himself as an old man. I love that juxtaposition. Were you able to get the microphone through the sphere of light? <laughs> I was. But I, just want a bit, I do want to point out that he's a much better looking version of that. Like the, the movie version. <laughs> he's all crusty he's and, all crusty yeah. and stuff but the but the, should be spoiler in alert person, on a 40 year old movie <laughs> that, in, in person he's actually uh, he's still a very handsome man so I'll have that uh, interview for you later on but first up we've got uh, our reviews we've got two reviews Luke and Crystal uh, first up we've got Luke and FF FF is one of the um, one of the um, titles that uh, come out of Marvel now um, and we were, I reviewed the first issue um, back when we were looking at the Marvel Now stuff, and actually thought this was one of the series, key series to watch. Um, and it's now all done and dusted after 15 issues. Um, and so I thought I'd actually try and review all of it as a series. 
Um, written by Matt Fraction and illustrated by Michael Aldred. It's a companion. It's a companion series to uh, Matt Fraction's Fantastic Four, which he did with Mark Bagley. Um, in Fantastic Four, he had Reed and the family go off on an interdimensional um, uh, vacation. Reed doing that because you know he wanted he wanted to spend some time with his family. That's what he was saying, but he was actually trying to find a cure for the um, the illness that was actually killing each member of the um, each member of the Fantastic Four. However, the setup for FF, this new FF, which is a carryover from Jonathan Hickman's days, um, is that a the 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 Future Foundation by itself and all the kids by themselves, but he can't leave the Earth unguarded for the four minutes that they're going to be gone. So he and the Fantastic Four assemble um, a team of people to take over, consisting of Scott Lang, She-Hulk, and Johnny Storm's girlfriend, Darla Crane, to take care of um, the kids, um, who are part of the Future Foundation, whilst they're gone, for the four minutes that the world is going to be unguarded. So naturally, you can imagine just how well that turns out, and that, you know, right on the dot, at four, the four-minute mark, nothing happens. <laughs> they don't come back. And that's the setup for FF. Um, unlike, say, Fantastic Four, which is which was a more obvious superhero, much more well well aware of it, the Fantastic Four as a group and as a history, FF takes a bit of a sidestep. Um, it's not a conventional superhero series in the way that most of the Marvel stuff generally is. It's not so concerned with superheroics. It's actually more concerned with, uh, first of all, the weirdness, um, but second of all, much more much more of a comedy. And I think that's Matt Fraction writing to the strengths of Michael Allred. Uh, Michael Allred, famous for things like Mad Men, brings his usual uh, post-60s sort of kitsch, but with a strong sense, but with a dynamic sense of design and a really strong storytelling sense to the proceedings as well. And it's a joy to behold. Um, you know, they concentrate instead of, you know, on... Whilst there's a through line, which is Scott Lang attempting to um, get revenge on... On Doctor Doom for killing uh, Cassie Lang, his daughter. There are nice little side marks dealing with, say, Bentley Bentley Whitman's attempts to show how villainous he is, show by making a down a downcast documentary showing how fallible every single member of the FF actually are, um, and the Moloids in their attempts to, you know, because they celebrate the joy that is the Ben, and they are well aware of Ben Grimm's attempt, Ben Grimm's previous relationship with Jennifer Walters believe that no one else should be with Ben Grimm but She-Hulk. And so in an attempt to in an attempt to worship and placate the Ben, they, they believe that they must defend the Jen from other suitors. Um, and it's that sort of weird Is that like a benefit thing? No, it's more because it's Ben Grimm who's the thing and Jennifer Walters who's She-Hulk. Uh, so they go with the Ben and then the Jen. It's more of a Moloids thing than anything. So other people listening is going, what the hell am I talking about? Um, but for people who are well aware of this stuff, they know full well. Um, and that's that's the key strength of this. It's the, the relationships, the characters, and the really nice, the almost absurd sense of comedy. It's a much more interesting read than Fantastic Four. Well, Fantastic Four was okay, but it's a, Fantastic Four was much more of a typical superhero action-adventure story, whereas this was actually trying to do something a little bit different, be a bit more fun, which a lot of the Marvel stuff and a lot of the DC stuff isn't, for the most part, these days. Um, trying to be a bit more comedy, trying to write to the strengths of its artist, then shoehorn this series into the rest of the Marvel Now sensibilities. And it worked. It was, you know... It hit the only reason it's really stopped is because Mike Allred went on to do Silver Surfer and Matt Fraction 
basically stopped doing the Fantastic Four. This was a title that I really looked forward to reading with its first issue. I waited for the trades um, and was really well rewarded in that regard, I think. it's um, You probably do need to read Fantastic Four, or at least the setup for Fantastic Four, to kind of get why this series exists. But after reading the initial setup, it's actually a much, much more rewarding read. I give this four looks. And it does feature one of my favourite lines in modern comics. Previously, it was Omactivate from Omac, but Thing Rings Do, do Your, your thing. thing is just fantastic. I'm obviously in the right I actually don't find... I didn't, I didn't enjoy this comic at all, and I don't okay. find Michael Orr that interesting. <laughs> I don't, okay. Controversy. It's, I know, it's kind, it's kind of weird. I, I mean, I don't deny, I don't deny his, his talent, mm. and I think he's, he's doing quite well on Silver, Silver Surfer, mm. um, but I, there's just something... It's just something about the art that just well, I mean, it's a, it's a very, me off. It's, it's a very sort of throwback, as you said, a very mm. kick style, very pop yeah. arty. Mm. But um, I would say underlying that, what I appreciate about Allred is that um, he is one of the uh, one of the best actual storytellers mm. in comics today. Like the the flow of I'll his with, pages I'll go is with just the storytelling amazing. for sure. Um, but there's, I know something about the eyes that sort of throw me. Cool. Thanks, Luke. Next up, we've got Crystal and the Checkout. The Checkout is a show that's on Australian TV on a ABC. The main two guys in it is Julian Morrow and Craig Rucastle, who Australian audiences will know from The Chasers War and Everything. Or The Chasers War and Everest, as it's known on IMDb. For some reason, they cut off the ing. <laughs> it's a little skit show combined with throwing out consumer information. It's quite over the top, the way it's presented. Um, but basically, they're, they're talking about things like... Um, products not living up to their promises and people making claims about their products that aren't quite true which is pretty much the same thing as i just said isn't it uh, one of the interesting things i learned on it recently is that it when people get health insurance for example uh, most people go for the one where you have to estimate how much your house and contents are worth and then they're insuring on that but there's actually one that you can get insured for that covers anything regardless of what the cost is so that's quite interesting um i think it's and it's over-the-top nature, I think my theory is it's sort of marketed towards those sorts of people who sit down and watch your tabloid current affair shows and blindly sort of accept what's being thrown at them. And this is sort of a, hey, wake up, it's not all actually like that. It's um, You've got to think about these things and apply a bit of critical thinking. And that's what I really like about this show. Is it's, it's a bit of critical thinking on mainstream TV. One of my favourite segments is, is they have the food example like the product example shop where the like you have buy some food in a package and on the front it's got a, a really lovely picture of what the food might look like versus the actual what the food really <laughs> actually looks like <laughs> what's wrong with this burger <laughs> exactly uh and they also have another segment called f youtube where people um send in little video clips of something that's gone wrong in their life yeah, it's my favorite bit as well the consumer sort of uh area and they um intersperse with that with comments from themselves and they yeah it's 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 quite an entertaining, if a little over-the-top, little program, and I give it a four. Awesome. Yeah, a short, short little review, but uh, it's worth it. Uh, it's actually been going since 2013, and I became aware of it sort of recently. And um, if you go and catch it at, at 8 p.m. on Thursday nights, they they often repeat little bits of it on ABC Two whenever they feel like it. <laughs> and don't forget iView, which they mention at the end of every show. iView. <laughs> Although it's probably regionalised, so you can only use it in Australia. <laughs> yeah, check it out. It's, it's, it's a cool little show. 
Next up we have our top five. For this edition, the top five, we're going to be doing our top five fictional detectives, which was suggested <laughs> by Crystal. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. And, uh, which, which was a good choice. So, uh, as usual, we'll start off with Richo. Okay. Uh, my number five choice was uh, Hercule Poirot. And I, I, I must admit, as much as I, I do enjoy the movies and the TV show and things like that, I'm talking specifically about the version of Hercule Poirot from the original Agatha Christie novels. I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie. I read all of her novels when I was in high school. But the Poirot, the Poirot ones were always um, the standouts. And a big reason for that was that he is just such a great character. Uh, very clever, very witty, but also um, just able to just dissect a mystery, analyse everything about it, and the the absolute classic moments of him just gathering everybody together to reveal who the killer is. I just, I love that kind of mystery, and he is the absolute um, uh, textbook definition of that kind of detective, and I love the parody of him from uh, Murder by Death as well. Uh, my number four choice was The Shadow. The, the Shadow is a really important character insofar as um, he establishes a certain type of uh, type of uh, detective, um, sort of mysterious detective adventurer. Obviously a huge influence on uh, characters like Batman, but re- really on a-, a lot of the detectives that came after him. He's also awesome. Um, he has you know, all the mysterious powers, and, uh, and those old pulp stories are just fantastic. Um, plus, he has... You know the the setup of a network of informants and spies and people working for him. Um, you know, really the stories involving him uh, are really amazing. Um, and so he was my number four vote. Okay, my number three <laughs> vote is purpose, <laughs> my number three vote is Philip Marlowe, and I'm sure that Marlowe's been included on uh, Luke's list as well. So I'll let him do the details of it. But for me, Marlowe is just the absolute epitome of the hard boiled detective. Um, I know a lot of people would actually say Sam Spade. But I think Marlowe is a more interesting character. Overall, he's in more interesting stories and he has greater longevity as a character. My favourite depiction of him outside the stories is still Humphrey Bogart. But there are actually a lot of good depictions of Marlowe as well. Whereas really, there's only one Sam Spade and that's the one from the Maltese Falcon. So um, so I think that speaks to, um, to Marlowe as a character as well. My number two choice, which I'm sure Luke will also have on here, is, um, is Batman the ultimate comic book detective. And when written as a detective, I don't think there is a better character in comic books. I'm glad you put that qualifier in there because he doesn't seem like a detective in the movies. Um, no, not not really. They, they do bits and pieces, but, um, but his best stories for me are when he's a detective. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, he's not much of a detective in the comics anymore, either. No, I know, but I mean... Look, you look at, say, um, well, I think the animated cartoon, mm. the the Bruce yeah. Timm, uh, Paul Dini cartoon, I think is a classic example of Batman as a detective. Wow. Um, and, yeah, I think when written that way, there really isn't a better, uh, a better character in comics, really. But my number one choice was so obvious <laughs> when doing this list, I just could It was the first character I thought of, and that's Sherlock Holmes. Um, he may not be the first literary detective... Uh, that goes to uh, Chevalier Dupont from um, Murder in the Rue Morgue. Um, but really, um, Sherlock Holmes sets the standard for all detectives. Um, he's a brilliant character. Um, he has been brilliantly interpreted time and time again. 
Uh, the original stories are still some of the best detective stories ever written. And I, there really was no other choice for number one. Methods ahead of his time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a credit to Arthur Conan Doyle for actually being, you know, so up with what was going on in um, investigative techniques at the time and then to extrapolate on that and, yeah, just create such a fascinating character. Yeah, like I said, there really was no other choice for number one. Cool. Thanks, dude. Good, good selection. Absolutely it is. Right, which is unusual for you. <laughs> what? <laughs> this aggression will not stand. It's <laughs> a light in the sand. Next up, we have young Luke. Now, this one was actually quite a hard one for me, as was ever, as um, There's too many choices. Dave, David would have actually. <laughs> I do, I do, I do need to point out that uh, we're, we're doing our top fives. Luke sent through his top five and a list of honorary mentions that we had like twelve people on it. <laughs> twelve people on it, and even, <laughs> even, and even then, I had to stop myself because. I went, okay, this is I far didn't too get much. the feeling that you actually stopped before there was more to come. Yeah, there well, we, 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 should point out, we should point out to the listeners that Luke is a hugely prolific reader of crime fiction. We don't even need to point that out. It's been mentioned many, yeah. many, many big, times. I'm a big fan I of, knew this was going to be a good one for I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of mysteries. I'm a big fan of yeah. detective stories. And I prefer detective stories where, you know, the detective is the focus and things like that. And, and out of that huge list, I'm just I'm shocked by your number five. Hit it. There's a reason, a, a reason why, and I know what you're saying. Method to the madness. There's a, there's a reason for it, and I tried to, I tried to make it my personal favourites, yeah. but also look at you know their relationship to what is going on in crime fiction in its history. Gotcha. Um, and so my top, my first one is my number five choice is Spencer. Most people might know him from the Spencer for Hire TV series, which I've never seen, but I'm going specifically from the books written by Robert B. Parker. There's a look of shock on David's really? face. I'm not it's, shocked. He's mentioned it's this not, before. It okay. is not. Yeah. You cannot get the series. Yeah. I have looked. And, I, you know, I came to Spencer 10 years after the show had finished. Gotcha. And I came through it via its original source, which was the books by Robert B. Parker. Spencer comes... Spencer belongs to the hard-boiled school of um, crime fiction, um, you know, following the tropes of Raymond Chandler, the, um, uh, Ross MacDonald, uh, John D. MacDonald, uh, Dashiell Hammett, that sort of... Those, those guys. Um, but he comes at a point where the PI, the, where the PI genre... Is actually at its lowest ebb. Not many more police, police procedural, more psychological, um, more forensic. This is I'm talking the mid to late seventies here. Um, and so what Robert B. Parker did was he actually wrote a PI again in the hard boiled mold, and it, he's actually credited with kickstarting, with get, reintroducing PIs back into crime fiction and making them more popular again. But unlike say Philip Marlowe or Sam Spade, who are very sort of cold, cynical, withdrawn, Spencer whilst he's quite macho, is actually a lot more open, is a lot more friendly, is a lot is not necessarily nice is the wrong not not the right term, but he has a he, warm side to he him. He has a warm side to him and he has a he has actually a stable relationship, you know, lovers, you know, with Sylvan Susan and friends um, around him that he turn that he turns to. But what makes him such a good detective is his attempts attempts to get a feel for what's going on. And one of the things he said, one of the things that Spencer says is that he doesn't know the answer straight away. He tries to feel his way into an investigation, and that always leads him to the truth. So he's my number five choice. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not shocked. I think Luke talked about Spencer during our Heroes yeah. episode. Oh, yeah. Not during that, but also during the Sidekicks. I voted the sidekicks Hawk, Hawk was my favourite. Hawk, yeah, Hawk was yeah, my yeah, favorite. yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, and Hawk is awesome, and I say that having never read the books. I'm not. I'm but my not, God, Avery Brooks on that TV show was the not, most awesome character. I'm not picking on your, on your choices. It's just that I mean, there was a list. There were 17 people. Yeah, <laughs> no, there's, there, and it, like I said, it was hard. Yeah, cool. And there were a couple of people who were actually on the top five who I knocked off. Gotcha. But I'll explain. 
Yep. No so that's number five. Number four, Veronica Mars. Now, Veronica Mars okay. fits into that, into another sort of popular subgenre, which is the Nancy Drew Hardy Boys teen detective type mold. But unlike a lot of those, a lot, a lot of those characters, which have you know softer, lighter, you know cutesy kind of cases, penciled by Mogorod. What? <laughs> um, Veronica Mars is actually quite on. Is what's being respectful of its audience quite hard hitting? Um, you know, dealing with no, but dealing with things that you don't generally get in a teen show and in teen detectives, like um, teen pregnancy, rape. Very rarely, you know, murder on the scale that Veronica Mars investigates murder as well. Um, it's actually quite a dark show for the type of, you know, I can't imagine Nancy Drew surviving one of Veronica Mars's mysteries, let alone making it to the end of the season. Whereas Veronica Mars is tough, she is very clever, and seeks to, you know, not does something that I always love characters doing, which is not just take out one person, but do one thing to try and take out about ten people, which she does very well. No, and so now we start to get into the similarities with the, uh, which I was like, um, three, Batman. Now put Batman above the shadow because Batman is actually the epitome of the costumed detective. Yeah. Um, as in, he's the one who has survived for 75 years, whereas the Shadow's heyday is really about 10 years. Yeah. Um, same with the Green Hornet, although the Green Hornet has a resurgence in the 60s with um, the TV show. Um, Batman has actually been continuously published since 1939. And I do also do take Crystal's point with the way that Batman as a detective is portrayed in things like the films, which is kind of there, but they focus on some other stuff. Um, Batman, the comics are certainly at least 20 years ago, back in the 90s, Batman as a detective was forefront. These days they're trying to get back into that with Scott Snyder, particularly with Batman Eternal and with The Court of the Owls. There's a, more of an attempt to make Batman a detective again. Yeah. Um, and certainly with Paul Denny's run in detective comics. When he's, when he's in full throttle, in full detective mode, Batman's virtually unstoppable as a detective. My number two choice is Philip Marlowe. Uh, Dave's that, Richard's absolutely right, sorry. Um, Philip Marlowe is the epitome of the hard-boiled detective. He's not the first, and I want to make that clear. He's not the first um, hard-boiled detective. He's not the last hard-boiled detective, but he is the one that a lot of writers, when they create these sorts of characters, he is the one that everyone goes to. And the reason for that is that, in spite of the fact that he's quite cynical and world-weary, um, there is the shop um Galahad element, the knight in, the knight in a, um, a dirt-encrusted suit, um, <laughs> which Sam Spade wasn't. Um, Sam Spade is an out-and-out out out bastard. Um, Philip Marlowe actually does care about the people that he yeah. tries to follow and you know, finds someone that he thinks needs to be defended. Generally a woman, but there is, always, there is always a reason for him to want to get involved. Also, the way that he looks at the world is fabulous as well. Chandler's writing is um, superlative. And of course, number one, um, and I don't think anyone, I think this guy is going to be on everyone's list at number one, is of course Holmes. Um, Holmes is the epitome of the other side of the coin, which is not the hard-boiled, world-weary cynicism, but the incisive reasoner, the one who can make connections between two facts and actually seek the answer and the truth from those facts. But um, what makes him so charismatic at the, certainly at the time is that he was a person who fought for the people. You know, he took a case. He took a case because it was challenging, and to see justice done. And quite often, he would take a case, not because there was going to be great riches. But because, um, yeah, because the the case would be challenging, but also because someone might actually need a hand getting to the truth. But apart from that, the um, the way in which he conducted his investigations and the 
for the first time seeing someone who could actually look at, say, a ring on a finger and tell a person's history and their personality from that, their actions as well, as well, hadn't been seen in great detail before apart from Edgar Allan Poe and has not been done anywhere near as well since. And he's still the number one detective in a lot of people's minds. I've got one word for you, Watson. Pygmies. <laughs> <laughs> Best line ever. <laughs> that was brilliant. I think it would be a good idea for the listeners, seeing that we mentioned Luke's runner-ups, that we list them in the show notes. Yep, that's an awesome idea. We'll definitely yep. do it for sure. <laughs> well done, 99. <laughs> <laughs> and next up we've got Crystal. Let me just preface my five by saying my number one was also Sherlock Holmes, but I decided not to put him in my list because I knew the boys would talk extensively about him. So my five is actually my top five runner-ups to Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's face it, everybody is just a runner-up to Holmes. It's totally on the right. They're in no particular order, so I'll just start from the bottom of my list because I didn't really rate them. Um, The first, number five, Anne. (laughs) <laughs> is Sam Tyler. Now I'm talking about the John Sims Sam Tyler, not the American version from Life on Mars. It's just mainly because the situation he's thrust into is, is uh, from our timeline thrust into 1973 and, and try, the, trying to deal with police methods back in the day versus modern police methods and the frustration that he's continually faced with. And it just... It's just a really interesting situation for him to be in. And the way that he and Jean both learn from each other, sometimes the older ways are good and sometimes the newer ways are good, and combining both ways really gets some results. Number four is Jim Rockford from The Rockford Files. Oh, he had the best jacket. Yeah. And the best car. And the best car. He was awesome. And the best dad. He's on my list. His dad was awesome. No (laughs) doubt about that. Uh, Jim Rockford is a sentimental favourite from my uh, youth. Uh, when I always say use, I mean really young years. <laughs> um, James, played by James Garner in, as I mentioned, Rockford Files. Um, not a lot to say about him, really. Just included him for the uh, nostalgia benefit. I just Savior. Uh, it's a good choice. I mean, that show yeah. was such a mainstay of like late afternoon rerun television. Well, I, I mainly watch most of the shows that I've seen when I'm staying home sick from school because yeah. it'll be on during the day. Yeah. Um, number three, uh, which I'm surprised no one's mentioned actually, Dirk Gently. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, Douglas Adams. Yes. He, he was a contender for me, but I just couldn't quite fit him in. He, uh, his uh, method of navigation is one that everyone should try at least once in their lives. <laughs> you pick someone who looks like they know where they're going, you often don't end up where you need to, where you want to go, but you often end up where you need to be. Yeah, which is probably good for a detective. Not so good if you're trying to actually get to work. <laughs> um, I didn't pick him specifically because I knew you were going to pick him. <laughs> there you go. We all know surprised, each other way su- too well. <laughs> I'm surprised he's at number three. To be perfectly honest. Well, number, I suppose you didn't rank this. So. No, I didn't really rank this, but uh, that leads me on to my number two, also a nostalgic favourite, and I picked him because he looks like my dad. <laughs> that would be one Thomas Sullivan Magnum from Magnum P.I. <laughs> as played by Tom Selleck um, from the middle to late 80s detective show set in Hawaii I love the combination with Magnum with, uh, he's on one hand really intelligent but often also stumbles across the right way <laughs> so, so a combination of intelligent but and bumbling detective at the same time He'd, he'd, he'd certainly make my list of top five detectives with the best facial hair. Tom Selleck is the only man in the world who looks weird without a moustache. Yeah. 
Yeah. He, he needs the moustache to make the face. <laughs> no, actually, I, I take that back. Probably my dad would be also look weird without a moustache too. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him without one. <laughs> what I'm taking from this is that your dad is actually Magnum P.I., in which case that's awesome. <laughs> I can see your dad going off like solving crimes in... Uh, Maybe Hawaii. in days. <laughs> And um, number one is Smokey Dalton, who I think I've mentioned on the show before. Mm. Smokey Dalton's the main character in Chris Nelscott, a.k.a. Christine Catherine Rush's uh, Smokey Dalton series. He's uh, a black man uh, in the late 60s, or the latest novel set in 1970. The latest novel's just come out called Street Justice. Go get it. It's really good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, as I've probably mentioned before on the show, it's just the, this... The series speaks to me. I just can't, I just can't believe how accurate it is. I'm I'm I didn't live through the times, and I'm not a black man, but it, it sounds very accurate to me. And the detail that she goes into, she must just sit there and do hours and hours and hours of research. Um, but not only to have accurate detail, but also to have an entertaining story and a mystery that you can really sink your teeth into is just a, a huge accomplishment. I think it spans across. Six or seven books now. I, I don't know. I'd have to get up and count them properly. <laughs> <laughs> so do yourself a favour. <laughs> check, check out the, that series. Awesome. Uh, so next up is myself. And, and like Crystal, most of my choices are nostalgia. I, I, I went more with the detectives that I sort of enjoyed uh, watching. It's actually interesting to note that all of them are the ones that have all been betrayed uh, in film or TV. Um, and... Uh, not necessarily the greatest detectives ever, but just the ones that just sort of meant a lot to me sort of growing up. Uh, number five, I, I also have uh, Crystal's dad, um, <laughs> uh, Thomas Magnum, who I just, who let's just face that he was just the ultimate in cool. I mean, I mean, they went a bit overboard by giving him a Ferrari, I suppose, but just he, he was just... actually his Ferrari. Well, and that's, that's, that's the cool thing about it, that it wasn't even his Ferrari. <laughs> he just kept taking it. Uh, it was just great, great stuff. Wouldn't point out, it was the 80s. <laughs> it's, uh, it was the 80s. Um, and it's, yeah, it, basically, it, it was... Magnum P.I. for me was, you know, combined with the A-Team and Knight Rider was basically, you know, my childhood television watching, sort of, you know, it was, it was, it was great stuff. Um, combined with that was uh, Jim Rockford from the Rockford Files, um, just brilliantly portrayed uh, by James Garner, as Crystal said. And uh, for the very same reasons, I mean, I used to actually, you know, I'd come home from school and it, would, he, it used to be on, at one at one point it was on at 4pm. That's right. And so yeah. I'd, uh, you know, get home in time so I could hear the answer machine message at the start, yep. which, uh, which was not always relevant to the show itself, but was always hilarious. I don't know yeah. why. Probably wasn't. <laughs> Thinking back, it probably wasn't that funny, but for, I, for some reason, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and uh, and his dad was awesome, and the fact that he was just a complete loser. But you know, he was he was brilliant as well. Um, at number three, once again, not probably not the greatest detective ever, but he actually has detective in his name. It's Detective Elliot Stabler from Elliot uh, <laughs> <laughs> SVU, and uh, he's just Elliot Stabler for me is a man's man. And uh, just he did. It. I mean, yeah. it's, they, I mean, the, the level of detecting wasn't probably the greatest. It was really, you know, very. It was, you know, very television type detecting. The answers probably just fell in their lap most of the time. Or if you want the actual detective from that show, <laughs> read the honourable mentions in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> there, there you go. Um, and, but but Elliot, I mean, Elliot was just a, a fascinating character. He was. I mean, he was. He was well realised and um, brilliantly, brilliantly portrayed. The real reason, though, that the, this character is on. Dave's list is because seriously since the show started 
Dave just wishes he was stabler. <laughs> I do. That's like, that it's, it's, it's been a massive man crush for like the last whatever yeah, it is, thirteen that, years or whatever. That's what I was going to say. So brilliantly portrayed by Christopher Maloney and. Christopher is just on fire at the moment, which is, I'm so glad to see because, yeah, the man crush is there. And uh, I just, and he deserves it. He deserves every success that he gets. So uh, keep going. But Stabler himself as a character, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, the, he's the man that I always wanted to be, <laughs> yep. which is kind of weird when you think about it. Uh, at number two, I had um, who I think is probably the greatest. I'm, I'll skip ahead. At number one, of course, I've got Sherlock Holmes. Now, I'm not going to say anything that hasn't already been said by everybody else. He is the epitome of detectives and uh and he's he's brilliant in every way he's brilliant um but at number two i actually have who i think i consider to be his equal in the television world and that's colombo colombo it basically had everything i mean colombo he himself was he was he was a a nice he was a friendly man he was brilliant he just he just oozed genius um and he just had just the, the amazing sort of set of mannerisms they just put it. Everybody was instantly at ease around him, and he got the job done. And it was just—it was just entertaining every single episode. And uh, Peter Falk, legend. We'd like to play the the dumb card. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's just I mean, in Colombo, and Colombo a, a, a lot, a lot like uh, Luke was saying. It's just I think Colombo is is basically at that point was the template for TD, TV detectives. Mm. Yeah, um, and continues to be so. You wouldn't have had Monk without Colombo. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that's uh, that's obviously uh, Sherlock Holmes, the big winner. <laughs> that's legend, but because uh, he is brilliant, but um, some some great selections. And uh, like Crystal said, I'll have uh, have uh, Luke's <laughs> honorable mentions in there as well. I fear for anybody who's interested. All right, so let's uh, move on to coming soon. In cinemas May first, we get Sabotage, which is uh, Arnie's big return. He's had a couple of a uh, couple of you know films before this but this is his uh his, his big big comeback and uh, he's, he's, in full on, he's in full on action mode and there is probably a chopper in there at some point is he going to you know you know lip sync the lyrics to beastie boys at some point <laughs> no it is it's essentially it's it's essentially a, a remake of predator but without the alien so it's you know you've got you know, like the group you know of all the, all the mercenaries and they all kick butt and you know they, they get into a bit of trouble it's uh mm. i'm actually strangely enough i'm quite excited about it yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you're excited about it because of the nostalgia of Arnie yeah, in, guess, uh, in what so. is clearly going to be an 80s-style action film. <laughs> he did, I, did, I did like it. I, I read an interview with him, and uh, he did mention this. Like, you know, back in back in my earlier days, I'd be carrying around, you know, like M60 Gatling guns and stuff. You know, guns that just, you know, no human should yeah. be able to do, but I was able to do because I, you know, I was me. So, but now uh, now I've scaled down. Now, now, now I'm actually carrying weapons that... Uh, you know, a human being should be able to carry and, and should be using. And then well, there's a picture nice. of him <laughs> in the interview with this massive, <laughs> massive gun. Like, come on, it's just it's just classic Artie. <laughs> uh, and we also get uh, fading gigolo, which I don't know is kind of interesting. It's it's um, John Turturro, who's the last person you'd be considered to be playing a gigolo, <laughs> playing a gigolo. <laughs> it's I don't know. Weird. Coming up next. The interview with Mr. Kira Dulia. Hi, this is David, and I'm here with uh, the one and only Kira Dulia. Uh, obviously, most well known from uh, 2001 and Space Odyssey, but just a wide and varied uh, film and stage career. Uh, absolutely, absolute honour to be talking to Thank you. Um, so, I, I uh, first uh, saw you in um, 2001 and 
has with other things. Uh, but I'm going back with the American pictures in the features in your game. Madam X. Yeah, Madam X. Yep. Um, and then into, of course, with Lana Turner. I know. I have, Not too bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, have you actually have you seen the thing Red Line remake? Yes, I yeah. did. Well, it was some years ago. Though. Yeah, it was quite a while. Yeah, it was very different. Yeah, it was, it was color. You know, one thing. <laughs> And it didn't have Jack Warden. No, it did not. Well, it didn't, it didn't have him. <laughs> so, um, so, of course, uh, you paid uh, David Bowman in uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Uh, what was your favorite memory of working in 2001? Oh, there are a lot of different memories that were meaningful. Uh, working day to day with Stanley Kubrick, who was one of the most, one of the great directors in, in the history of the cinema, and was very supportive. During the whole time, he never raised his voice, was very patient, was open to suggestions, probably open to suggestions as much as he was because he was so prepared, the most prepared director I've ever worked with, almost anal in his preparation. So he could kind of sit back and relax, and he didn't do a lot of directing because, uh, this is my theory, more than a theory, I think it's been borne out in my experience, is that the great directors, this isn't just about myself, it's about directors in general the great directors the really good directors cast well well if you cast well you don't have to do a lot of directing because you've cast well and so the, they're perfect for the role and they know what to do I mean I'm oversimplifying that that doesn't mean that he didn't direct but there wasn't a lot well my memory, in my memory, I don't remember in an ordinary amount. I think that happened as his career went on. I think he became fussier. We had, you know, when we'd have a lot of takes, to a great extent, it was because this was a very technical film. A lot of things could go wrong in any given take. You know, bulbs could explode. It was, you know, for example, the centrifuge, that huge wheel which created artificial gravity, actually revolved at three miles an hour and. Uh, if you can imagine a Ferris wheel, except instead of being able to see through a Ferris wheel, it was all a set. It was built into all the surfaces of that Ferris wheel. And there were computer screens and so on, with all kinds of lights behind the screens that could explode and did from time, because of, they were going in constant motion when it would... Anyway, so for that reason, you know, they probably did have a number of takes. But I don't remember us having a lot of takes because of performance. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, you can the set that you just back. mentioned back then, so what, what was it like actually operating the set? Was the set actually moving? Well, the set, yeah, we got used to it, obviously, but when we first walked in the, in the studio, oh my God, I'd never seen sets like that. They were, and they had to be extraordinary because there's no computerized general, I mean, computerized special effects that didn't exist in those days, so everything you saw in the Everything you see in the film was done physically one way or the other. And uh, it, was a, it was amazing. I mean, just as an example, in that centipede, you, remember, may, you may remember a scene where Gary Lockwood was upside down at the top of that wheel, at the top of that centrifuge, and in the shot, 
you see it all in one shot with no cutaway. I enter from the hub, come down the ladder, and seemingly walk upside down to Gary Lockwood, when in actual fact, he had a harness and was hanging upside down. They revolved him down to me, and I just stood in place. That's awesome. Wow. That's just an example. This is, uh, 2001 is, uh, I mean, I'm not wearing the t-shirt again today, but you saw me yesterday. It's just like, a massive influence on, on me and, mm-hmm. um, and us as a group uh, for the podcast. I mean, the Hell is our symbol, our symbol logo for the podcast. Yeah, we've used the theme song as my own intro song. Yeah. And it's, it's and we all rated as, you know, one of the greatest songs yeah. ever all time. So magnificent. Um, everybody asked her about, uh, about 2001 Stanley Kubrick and Stanley Kubrick, so, um, but I'm actually quite interested in what it was like working with Otto Preminger uh, in the previous film, but in like It was while I was filming that film that I heard, that was, it was filmed in London, as was 2001. So one day after work, I come home under my usual black cloud, which I'll explain in a moment. Okay. And my wife says, call your agent. So I called my agent in New York, and he said, are you sitting down? I said, no, why? He said, you better sit down. I said, okay. You've just been offered the lead in Stanley Kubrick's next day. It was, I had no idea in a million years that I was being considered. No idea whatsoever. So, and I was a Kubrick fan by that time. When I was in drama school, I watched I went a happy afternoon off and went to see a Kirk Douglas movie down the street. It was called Paths of Glory. And I, I, my knee, my, my jaw dropped to my knees within the first minute of that film. So I rushed to the poster to see who directed this. It was Stanley Kubrick. So I was a Kubrick fan to be offered. I mean, I had just seen not too long before Dr. Strangelove. Blown away by that. But I'd seen all of his, most of his major films. I'd seen The Killing by that time, with uh, Sterling Hayden and uh, Lolita and well, everything. Yeah. And so, anyway, this is an extraordinary thing. Now, it's Otto Preminger <laughs> lived up to his reputation as being the worst bully so, in the business. He was, it was, I went to work, I mean, it was a great honor to work with uh, uh, Lawrence Olivier, who was in the, and I love working with Carol Lindley, but it was such a negative, negative experience. I, it was not a happy experience. He was a real bully. He, he went after certain people, usually younger actors. So he went after Carol and Lee and I. It was a little better when Olivier was on the set. He wasn't quite as awful. No, he's kind of But he was an awful man. He, by the way, I have to preface this by saying he made some great films. He made some wonderful films. And he also, which I did admire, uh, was uh, he didn't kowtow during the during the Cold War? We had what was known in our business as the blacklist. A lot of wonderful actors who were left of center were accused of being communists and never worked again until many many years later. Howard De Silva, who was the psychiatrist in David and Lisa, uh, he had a huge Hollywood career in the 40s. He was in a famous movie with Ma- Ray Milan called The Lost Weekend. Played the bartender. Yep. And he, but he didn't any other. And then he was blacklisted. David Lisa was the first uh, film job that he had after all those years of being out of the business. And um, that's because it was an independent film and the director couldn't care less what his politics were. And Premier was, to some extent, the same way. I admired him for that, but he was an awful man. Um, and you mentioned the black cloud. Well, I, I, I meant just symbolically. It was like going to 
work every day Welcome under a black cloud. I mean, rep represented I was, how depressing it was to go to work. Right. Okay. Then of course, the yeah. 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 Right. Oh, night and day. Yeah. 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 But it wasn't Stanley Kubrick, you know, and I, I didn't anticipate that it would be. Also, my role as, other than Roy Scheider, everyone pretty much had a cameo. Uh, mine particularly. It was kind of interesting to see them reproduce the set and the spacesuit, which uh, they, I don't it was amazing that they reproduced it because they didn't have it from the original film at all. It didn't exist. It, everything had been destroyed by at Stanley Kubrick's orders. Most of it. Few no, things survived, but very, very few things. Like, just kind of, I can't even have this interview without mentioning the Star Wars. Oh, a lot of this actually, a friend of mine, had, I think my father, had uh, this entire series of VHS well, yeah. tape that he taped off the TV. And, uh, oh, okay. and I, I used to go over there and I used to go over there and I used to go over there. Well, from, from our point of view, uh, the, the, the first one was really terrific. He had a good director, it was a good script. Sterling Hayden was the star, the, co the, the um, guest star on, on it. But it, as, as the episode, we did 13, I think we did 13. As the episodes progressed, it got and worse and it was made in Canada. Yeah. As the series oh, and have this made from the. the I think yeah. they ended up paying a dollar ninety-eight to the screenwriters, and, yeah. and uh, it, it, it was kind of really a great piece of work for us. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I love my co-stars. They were too much. Yeah, I think I would. It would be ninety dollars. It got kind of boring. Do I pictures it here or you pay right here? It waved in the wind. It was a very inexpensive. It was all, everything was done in a, but a I television studio. And you don't have it to you unless you and, have um, a lot of money and don't care. Don't there was care. A one scene. Okay, you are. Of, uh, you saw the whole thing, right? Uh, all right, do you remember the episode that takes place with this mad scientist and uh, he's got these uh, giant bees? Giant bees? Okay. Well, they were, real, they were just bumblebees that they, you know, near a few projection, right? And at one point, Garth... My co-star saves the day. He comes bounding in with this kind of spray, uh, and he's got a green tank and sprays. Of course, what he was spraying was the rear view projection of the bumblebees, right? I never met him. And what they did, this is, this is how, how, in, how low the budget was. They saw a, a red fire extinguisher on the wall. Which was a real fire for the for emergency with a with a with a hose and a big black funnel. Well, they painted it green to look like a weapon. Give you an idea of what we had to put up with. I mean, I had a good time. It was all shot in, in, in the studios were in Toronto, and I enjoyed. I, I worked in Canada. I'm featured on it, I guess I'm quite proud that I did a film with Sandy Dennis. I don't know if you actually is, but she was a big name the other day. Based on the Gage Lawrence story called The Fox. I just imagine that he probably just be a little bit crazy as well. Near Toronto, also. I did another film which you can see for nothing on YouTube. I'm very proud of this film because it's a kind of role I never cast in. And I was very proud of it. 
There's a wonderful balladeer by the name of Gordon Lightfoot, who's a uh, Canadian, I don't know if you know you know that he wrote a song called If You Could Be Paper. Anyway, the name of the film is Paperback Hero. And you can see the whole film on YouTube. And it's, it's, it's a terrific film with a wonderful actress that I've worked with on Broadway by the name of Elizabeth Ashley. And anyway, uh, so I've worked in Canada a lot and done things I've done. If you're doing great, good Skylos, yeah. It was okay on a personal level, but it wasn't one of my memorable things. Projects. Yeah. Remake of Stylos? You know. I'd have to think twice. I'd have to think twice. It would be like this. Did you, I mean, I know Harlan Nelson left the production before he even started. Well, that kind of tells you. He took his name off it. He took his name off it, yeah. Absolutely. That tells you what he thought of the series. Did you get to meet him before that? No, I never met him at all. It was, the screenplay was already written by the time I came on board. Yeah, even then, we thought. By the time I came on board. Really exciting. 2001, Steve Stanton. Yeah, no, as a matter of fact, I think, I could be wrong with this, if you take it Very time, early on, I think Doug Trumbull got involved, but he left. Yeah. Yeah. And there is yeah. Everybody yeah. left like getting off the sunken ship. Side of the times. <laughs> um, so One we've talked about like a lot about 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 months about the four months ago. I heard it's meant to be real. Yeah, it was, uh, so I'll check it out, but it, it August, seems September. Well, I mean, it's you'll, you'll, you'll have year. a good time. Yeah. I had done the first yeah, Broadway like revival a bit more of just a, uh, in 1974, playing yeah. you know, like the film with Paul Newman. She has personally made ten times with, more money. Um, Fred Gwynn. Do you know who Fred Gwynn is? Fred Gwynn played Big Daddy. Who is much better than Burl Ives? I, my first, bro, my first Broadway play was Burl Ives, so I could judge who the better actor was. And they, there was no, not that Burl Ives was bad in Cat. He was the only original. He was in the original Broadway cast way back before they made the film, playing the dad, playing Big Daddy. But um, then to be asked to play that role, I never thought because I'm not obvious casting at all. By Drew DeMeer, that I had. It was the, probably, from my point of view, the peak experience yeah, of the my acting life. Kind of Last 57 years, it on nothing has been the same. Big Daddy. I not only grew, grew the beard for it, but I, I never did a role with a voice like I'm doing now. The reason I, 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 I did the voice the way I'm doing it because. I was channeling Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn had a very low voice. And it just made me feel like the character. You know what I mean? No, we did that in English. Storyteller with dialogue. Sure. Yeah. He wrote two dumb names. That's a great deal. Okay. If you were doing this interview, I know he was involved, I think. That's a hard one because I've been doing these kinds of interviews for a long time. And uh, okay, you know what would be an interesting question? I would not answer it. But an interesting question would be: if you hadn't gotten the role, who do you see playing your role? 
Awesome now I've never been asked that. Okay. And maybe because I know this from Gary, the, the actor that was really, what's the word when you do everything you can? Campaigning? Campaigning, thank you. Who really was campaigning to get a role was one bed together. What? Middle half. He campaigned heavily, <laughs> and he came to Gary at the I mean, world premiere. Well, it was the Los Angeles premiere. The world premiere was in Washington D.C., and he just said, that the wheel "You are so bad." I like Warren Beatty's work, and I think a favorite film of mine is Red. You watch the film, you never know. So that'll be the answer to the question, Warren Beatty. All right, why not? I can't think of anybody else. I'm sure if I really gave it some thought, I might be able to think of somebody else, but I... Uh, You're the only one. Yeah. I can't think of anybody who would be better than me. You know, it just depends on what you And on that note, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not at all. All the rest of the crew are going to be so jealous. We're meeting them, how bloody awesome was that interview? What a champion! As a, that is impressive. It is, just, it is, it's awesome, awesome stuff. And I could have talked. To, I could have talked to him just for hours. Is there uh, such a thing as nerd envy? I think I'm experiencing <laughs> nerd envy right you should, now. You should, because he was awesome. And uh, again, thanks to Supernova Expo for that. Very cool. Uh, so that's it for episode 89. Just before uh, we head up, I just want to do a, a bit of feedback. Um, we've had quite a lot of uh, good feedback about our episode 88 discussion about Teen Titans uh, sort of controversy, sort of critique and controversy around it. So thank you to everybody who uh, responded and you know responded well to that and essentially agreed with us, which is cool. Um, uh, well, I just want to do one special mention for one of them. Uh, the Fools Who Follow uh, are a podcasting group from the States and they contacted us via Twitter and said that uh, that they found out about us from that episode and uh, loved it and you know are now uh, following us and listening to us. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, and in return, I actually listened to their show as well. Uh, one of their shows. I've actually got a couple of shows uh, that sort of have sort of different themes, which is pretty cool. They've got their own sort of little mini network. Um, and uh, yeah, they're very very funny and uh, massive Star Wars nerds. In fact, one of the guys on the show. I think is actually a member of uh, a costuming group called the Mandalorians, or cool. the Mandalorian Armor, or something like uh, uh, Army, or something. Um, and uh, he talks about like attending conventions and events and stuff like that. It's, it's really really interesting. So uh, check them out at uh, thefoolsthatfollow.podbean.com. So that's it for episode eighty nine. That's it from me and the crew, Richo. Uh, still experiencing nerd envy, but I'll get over it. <laughs> and Luke, thirteen, Bobby Gorin, and Crystal. And we've been watching the detectives. <laughs> oh, that was beautiful, man. Take that show on the road. I don't even, oh, I don't oh, get the reference. I just thought of another one. 14, no, Russ that's a, Cole. That's enough. Because <laughs> Luke's been watching the detectives, that's for sure. <laughs> Bye. www.nerdculturepodcast.com And email feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com Facebook
Facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast. Twitter? At nerdculturecast. Uh, you can also Skype us uh, on Nerd Culture Podcast, and you can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget, we also have our Amazon affiliate widget on our website that uh, you can go, use to go through and purchase things through Amazon uh, with your own with your own account. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but we get a, a, a slice of the profits and um, a very small slice, but a slice nonetheless. It makes uh, us happy, and uh, which you know helps us uh, produce the show and uh, various other stuff. But also, it's just it's awesome. So if, uh, if you could use that, that would be awesome. And thank you for listening.